God, those communists are amazing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him as well. And also Ramiro Fundes, our guest, uh, he, him, has come back to talk about Nicaragua. How's it going, Ramiro? It's going pretty great, man. I'm glad to be speaking with both of you about Nicaragua, about the Sandinista Revolution, and reviewing this film that tries to encapsulate and explain the Sandinista Revolution, but we can break down some of the errors with it and our perspective as, as leftists. Hell yeah. Yeah, I watched your documentary over the week, and uh, it was great. A lot of great info in there. I would highly recommend it to all of our listeners after listening to this episode and the last one. Please go check it out. It's Nicaragua Against Empire. And you'll find it on YouTube. It's the two-hour documentary. You can just watch it freely on there. And yeah, really cool perspective about the attempted coup in 2018 and all the background and history of Nicaragua that goes into it. Um, so definitely a good primer to explain all the situation that's going on in Nicaragua, even up to today, because um, it really just goes in depth and explains a lot of things about that, very relevant to what we're talking about now. So with that being said, let's just pick up on this video where we left off last week. I'm pretty sure I got it at about the right point. And uh, we'll just comment on this, and Romero will fill in all the gaps and all the uh, relevant info, since he is the man with all the knowledge about Nicaragua. Glad to have you here, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's pick up on this. While the U.S. ambassador negotiates, unknown to him, officials in Washington are pursuing a different strategy. Just six weeks after his inaugural, on March 9, 1981, President Reagan signs a secret directive. Nicaragua is declared a threat to El Salvador and ultimately to the United States. On authority of the president's signature, the CIA sends its operatives into the field. In the countries on Nicaragua's borders, small rebel armies have formed, financed by wealthy exiles and composed largely of veterans of Somoza's dreaded National Guard. The CIA will secretly organize among the scattered groups, attempting to unify them into one opposition force to confront the Sandinistas. So again, that's what we left off talking about last week was the involvement with Guatemala and neighboring South American countries and how this follows a very similar pattern to CIA-funded opposition groups attacking Cuba and other legitimately elected leftist governments in South America. And that's definitely a theme we'll be harping on a lot tonight, is just how one-to-one -one this all is with Cuba and Guatemala and every other country that the U.S. Uh, overthrew leftist governments in. At the same time in Managua, Pizzullo warns Ortega that if Nicaragua wishes to avoid conflict with the United States and the loss of millions of dollars in U.S. aid, they must stop shipping arms to El Salvador. Ortega gets the message. We spoke to Pesulo about the issue, and we asked that the information be shared, because we knew there was concern that Nicaraguan territory was being used to supply arms to the Salvadoran guerrillas. We kept in touch and uh, dismantled the place being used for the transport. This administration has made strong representations to the Nicaraguans to cease... In Washington, the State Department confirms that Nicaragua has stopped shipping arms. Their response has been positive. We have no hard evidence of arms movements through Nicaragua during the past... But despite Nicaragua's compliance, the administration announces that it is cutting off economic aid anyway. So, another similar pattern we see here. The U.S. making unreasonable demands, 
of a sovereign country that they don't really have any legitimate control over or have any right to make these demands of. And then the country complies anyway. And the U.S. still goes forward with the aggression that it was going to go forward with all the time anyway. Um, I don't know if you have any comment about that, Romero. Yeah, that's indeed with many countries around the world, not just Nicaragua. We saw the Iran nuclear talks, JCPOA. Iran basically followed all of the guidelines that were set by the U.S. And the U.S. was still like, fuck that. We're going to go against you. Syria, Venezuela, Cuba. And it's interesting because the last time I was in Nicaragua a few weeks ago, I was interviewing this one older lady who commented about this very same situation where Nicaragua stopped sending arms to El Salvador during the Civil War. And I asked her, what's your message to the U.S. government, given everything that's going on with the sanctions? And she says, look, I have no message for them. There's nothing you can tell them that will change their mind because they're not people they're not a government you can negotiate with they're not a government of their word and you have to take everything the u.s government says with a grain of salt because they never hold true to their promises and she's exactly right and it's sad because somebody like her who has never even stepped foot in the u.s understands the bourgeois nature of the u.s government better than most liberals in the u.s who believe that by just getting the right people in and electing the right representative we can stop this imperialist system. So it's just really fascinating. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Ward? No, I was just going to mention like how just incredibly textbook, you know, these tactics are where it's like, oh, we'll fund right-wing militias or we'll make ridiculous requests from a government we have no fucking business making requests from under the guise of democracy and then oh you didn't follow that well here's economic sanctions and it's just so repetitive and it's so clear once you see the pattern you can't negotiate with terrorists <laughs> you can't negotiate with terrorists. That's what it comes down to like and again i mean it kind of just reminds me of all the broken treaties with native americans it's like literally the entire mm. history of the u.s has been to make promises make unreasonable demands and then break the promises that you make anyway but anyway continue I think it was a, uh, a landmark decision uh, because it set a tone, it set a psychological, it's sort of a psychological benchmark in the relationship, which was very difficult to ever recapture. And that was my argument. Don't do it. Uh, you can always cut off that aid program. We don't have to give them the money. We can keep that money, you know, for as long as we want. Once you've done it, it's one of those acts you can't redo, you can't undo. November 16, 1981, the day the choice is made to deal with Nicaragua by force. Reagan's National Security Council gathers for a secret session. Some advisors will argue that the U.S. should send its own troops and swiftly eliminate the Sandinistas. But the president chooses a less dangerous approach, war by proxy. He signs a secret directive with the stated purpose of stopping the flow of arms from Nicaragua to El Salvador but it also authorizes the CIA to develop a paramilitary force and promises more money and men later as needed. The goal was to get the Sandinistas out. From the beginning? From the beginning. That was not what was said. Well, I can't say that, I mean, I can't speak for the president, but I can tell you that in the minds of all those people around him, wherever they are, the so-called true Reaganites, the goal was, uh, to, to move them out. It's funny how, again, a very similar pattern of the public U.S. policy toward a sovereign nation 
and then the secret U.S. policy and how aggressive that secret policy is as far as like waging war, clandestine war and funding groups that are going to commit atrocities in a country that dared to stand up to U.S. imperialism in any way. Um, I can continue yeah. unless anybody else says anything. Go ahead. No, I, I, I love the, um, the liberal wording where it's like the less dangerous approach of doing war by proxy. Or who? Like, it's, yeah. it's less dangerous politically for the president here in the United States, but it's, not, it's no less dangerous for the citizens and people of Nicaragua. Yeah. And even internationally, because at the same time around that year, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s, we also know that the U.S. was financing, training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the socialist government in Afghanistan that was elected and backed by the Soviet Union. And the strategy of supporting far-right fundamentalist terroristic groups and thinking that it'll never come to your borders has now come to the fore where the majority of the, of the people who are coming from the migrant caravans from Central America are coming from countries like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala that were devastated by the drug war and gangs that was created to begin with from that whole period of the Contras. And then you have Afghanistan, the, the Taliban, you have the, the radical Wahhabis backed by the U.S. people fleeing Syria, Afghanistan because of groups that were propped up by the U.S. So like Malcolm X said, the chickens come home to roost, even though you think a country is thousands of miles away. Now it's we're seeing all of this come back to the gates of empire. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, not the worst part, because obviously the worst part is the atrocities that the U.S. is committing in other countries. But the worst part for people here in the U.S., like the worst part domestically, is that this still all just works in the favor of the U.S. government, no matter how it plays out, because if they get what they want, and it doesn't destabilize this country, um, and it just allows them to, you know, have a country that's friendly to U.S. business interests, then they win that way. But if it does destabilize the country, and it sends a bunch of immigrants to the U.S. who are seeking a better life and seeking to get away from all this instability, well, then it just creates more upheaval here in the U.S. And then that leads to more government crackdowns, because it creates the anti-immigrant sentiment, which also benefits the government, because the government loves to make money off of imprisoning people like the whole private ice camps and everything it's like it just always because of the paradigm that's set up it always works out in the favor of the u.s government no matter what right, I'll, I'll pick back up here an army organized and equipped by the american government after vietnam the american public has no stomach for direct u.s intervention where american boys will do the dying so this army will be manned with foreign youth they're known as the counter-revolutionaries, or Contras. The Contras are coming. They're at the crossroads, and they killed a young guy. We couldn't spend the night at home last night. We couldn't even take sheets or blankets with us. We had to sleep out last night, and we're just now heading back to our village. By early 1982, a war has begun in Nicaragua. The action then is described by a former Contra leader. They were making small incursions, hit and run things, and it was just to attack isolated uh, places or kill a uh, border guard or, or harass people in a farm or things like that. 
Do those attacks have anything to do with interdicting arms uh, between Nicaragua no. and El Salvador? No, you know, in all the time I was involved with the Contras as a director, and, and before I was made a director, I was in very close contact with the Argentinians and the CIA. They never talk about we are going to stop uh, the flow of weapons to El Salvador or to Honduras. The border between Nicaragua and its neighbor, Honduras, where the Contras are based, becomes a war zone. The Sandinistas declare a state of emergency and begin to remove peasants from villages in the area. That includes the brutal relocation of the Mosquito Indians, providing the Contras with a growing supply of recruits. Many of the people at that time were mostly peasants. Some of them have also their own grievances against the Sandinistas. Sandinistas made many mistakes. They, they, they mishandled the minority groups in the East Coast. So those people became very anti-government and ready to fight. I just want to make a point if it's cool. Yeah, I was going to stop it there as well because um, that's a very reminiscent clip of like a lot of uh, parenti videos that we like to watch, but go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point, and this is something. This is a talking point that even a lot of liberals will regurgitate about Nicaragua: is that the Sandinista government oppresses the Miskito people in the northeastern Caribbean coast, where the gentleman was talking about earlier. And first of all, one thing that's important to recognize is that, as I mentioned last time, Nicaragua, or more than half of the geographic area of the country, is autonomous region for African indigenous peoples on the coast, the Northern Caribbean Autonomous Region and the Southern Caribbean Autonomous Region that was created through the Sandinista Revolution. So a lot of that is lies, complete lies, because the indigenous peoples have control of their own land. And secondly, the lands that were, in, in terms of some of the disputes that took place in the early 80s after the revolution, most of them were with large landowners who happened to be Miskitu, but were even oppressing their own people. I mean, it's kind of a sort of the same line that we hear people say about China suppressing Tibetans after the Chinese revolution in 1949. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those who were suppressed were like the Dalai Lamas, the big feudal warlords who owned large pieces of land and exploited their own people. And it's not characterized in this way. And, and I think this is really like the beginnings of how identity reductionism, identity politics is weaponized against leftist anti-imperialist governments in a way that, that we're seeing today, where they're saying we support indigenous rights against the Sandinista revolution. And at one point, they even tried to recruit Russell Means from the American Indian movement to speak out against the Sandinistas. And they recruited sectors of Native American groups in the U.S. to speak out against so-called indigenous genocide in Nicaragua, which was based on a complete lie. And I went to that very area that they're talking about, interviewed many people who can tell you very clearly that they defend their revolution, they support it because of their gains of land and autonomy. And it's so misconstrued. And I just wanted to point that out because I think that's one of the biggest misunderstandings about the Sandinista revolution is its relationship with the Miskitu people. Yeah. No, that's yeah. great info. Go ahead, Ward. Yeah. And even if like, let's just say hypothetically, if those allegations were actually true, like they took the people off of their land and moved them and everything. Okay. Yeah. If you want to do a unnuanced take, yeah, that's a bad thing. 
But if that were to happen, why did it happen? Oh, foreign invasion from U.S. backed militaries. Yeah. You know, it's not just like, oh, they did this evil thing just because they fucking felt like it. No, they were immediately under threat from U.S. backed foreign invasion. Yeah. I mean, to explain the Parenti clip I was referencing at the beginning is like when he explains that socialist projects found that they needed to create things like secret police, they needed to curb what you would call technically free speech because they couldn't allow fascists to get their propaganda onto the radio and into the newspapers because it was going to create more reactionaries and create more terrorists in their own country to fight that were going to kill their own people. So it's like you can definitely take that that side of the fascists and the reactionaries and say like they shouldn't be moving these indigenous people against their will. But it's like they're doing it not only for the protection of those people, but also for the continuation of the socialist project that has improved people's material conditions. And it's just done out of necessity to combat the counter-revolutionaries, like literally the counter-revolutionaries in this, in this instance. But uh, yeah, and those uh, like those structures, like those organizations, like they can make mistakes. Yes, but right. they wouldn't have had to make mistakes if it wasn't for espionage, foreign invasion, you know, things of that matter. Yeah, I'm, de- I'm absolutely sure mistakes were made and it wasn't like a paradise or like a great experience for the people involved. But it's like that doesn't mean that it was some kind of totalitarian like like Daniel Ortega is just doing this just to be a dickhead to these indigenous people. Right. Like, it's not, not how it works. Like Exactly. All right, I'll, uh, I'll pick back up here. Also brought by force, intimidated or they are they are putting a position they have no choice. How does that work? Well, it works for instance, a commander goes to a town in Nicaragua or close to the border. And then he says, who are here Sandinista supporters? Uh, then they identify two or three. He shuts them in public. Then he asks the rest, do you want to follow me? Well, most people follow them. And then that's enlightening too, because it's like, you could understand indigenous people siding with the Contras if, again, they're not understanding the situation because maybe they're just literally working on a farm, like they're peasants who are just living their day-to-day life and they don't understand geopolitics. They don't understand that the U.S. is invading and that's why this is being done to them. So they just go with what they see right in front of them, which is that their own government is forcing them to leave their homes and their family and friends or whatever. It's like, I could understand becoming a reactionary in that instance. But then also when you couple it with the Contras coming in, asking who's a Sandinista supporter and then just shooting them immediately, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess you're probably going to decide with the Contras if that's the case, because what choice do you have? And an interesting, uh, that's a great point, and an interesting historical anecdote related to that is the fact that if you look at a map, a lot of those regions of Nicaragua, the Miskitu regions, are actually, a lot of them have names in English. So you'll see places like uh, Bluefields or Corn Island or things like that. And it's interesting, like, why is that? And it's because the British actually colonized the Miskito coast in the 1800s as a beachhead against the Spanish Empire, which colonized the Pacific and the majority of that region. And the British, in their typical divide-and-conquer style, basically did the same thing that the Contras did and went there and were like, you know, if you don't fight against the Spanish, we're going to kill you. And that's why a lot of those areas became English-named. So this is something that has happened forever and ever. Not to say the Spanish were the good guys in that situation, not at all. Yeah. But just that, that tactic of dividing the population and pitting one against the other at the barrel of a gun has been used before. And, and it was definitely used in this situation as well. Yeah, just making the people that you're trying to subjugate fight each other instead of sending your own troops to do it because that would be politically inconvenient. All right. Within six months, by the summer of 1982, 
the nature of this war is clear. The proxy army does not confront the Sandinista army in open battles. Its targets are mostly peasant villages. They took them away. They took our men away. All of them. They took them by force. They took them with their hands tied behind them and a rifle right here. Oh, you're crying, the Contra said. We give you something to cry about. My baby was conscious, my mom. <laughs> and the one who was taking care of her was wounded. And when they tried to kill her, they killed the baby. That's the worst part of what they're doing, killing innocent children who don't know anything. How can anyone believe they're committing these horrible crimes here, burning our farmland, killing our children, killing our friends? In Washington, this is called low-intensity warfare. It is quite different from the way the U.S. fought in Vietnam. The targets of the attacks include rural health clinics, schools, and farm cooperatives. Nicaragua now recognizes it is at war with the United States. Although there are no American soldiers in the field and no declaration of war by the U.S. Congress. December 1982. And you may think they will overlook the Contra's terrorist tactics, but you are wrong. The American people are outraged. A year after the Contra army is organized, some members of Congress are upset by news stories of attacks on villages in Nicaragua. The fires of communism are burning in But the administration has learned another lesson from Vietnam. A war can be lost in Washington as well as on the battlefield. So a move in the Congress to cut off Contra funds means the proxy war has a public relations problem. Now this is where it gets kind of really enraging because this is where you see people like Reagan and his cronies outright admitting to what they're doing, but then explaining how it's technically legal. Um, but I also just kind of want to note that, like, I don't think this is the start of it. I'm sure this is not the first time that there was a clandestine. I mean, I know this is not the first time there was a clandestine war waged against a, a leftist country, but you can see that that's become the new way that the U.S. wages war now. Like, we haven't declared an official war since I don't even know what, like, Vietnam or whatever. Like, it's been that long, but that's just how the U.S. wages war now. It's just to fund everything, to call it like a military action, call it something that's not a declaration of war so that you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I gotta love think tanks just sitting around rebranding shit. Yeah. Yeah, and even around that time period, 1982, that same year was the year that in Guatemala, a fascist president, Efraín Ríos Montt, came to power in a military coup, right-wing evangelical backed by Reagan, who murdered thousands of indigenous Guatemalans, many of whom were communists as well. And that was also the year that Guatemala and the Contras were receiving arms and training from Menachem Begin, the Israeli prime minister, and Mossad. And Mossad got a lot of its training in Guatemala and in Honduras during this time, training the Contras, training the, the death squads. So there's so many international connections. I think so, a lot of times people, and I include many people on the left as well, view history in a very isolated way where we just kind of study histories country by country mm -hmm. and not see how they interact. But this conflict that we're seeing now in, the, in, the, in 1982, 1983, this is happening as 
Guatemalans, indigenous Guatemalans are being genocided. He mentioned Argentina. This is under the Operation Condor military dictatorship of Varela in Argentina that was disappearing leftists in Argentina as well. Pinochet in Chile was supporting this. So this is all interconnected and, and it's just really crazy to see that. Yeah, I mean, it really starts to look like that um, conspiracy board with all like the red yarn on the pushpins and everything. It's like you can't help but connect all these things. And if you try to explain it to liberals and even leftists who are unfamiliar with it, you can l- end up looking like some kind of crazy conspiracy theorist. But it's just it's just the facts of the U.S. history and U.S. intervention. Right. Yeah. It, you only look like a conspiracy theorist because th- those liberals or right wingers just haven't paid enough attention to what the CIA ha- themselves have admitted to. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where we're getting to uh, the Boland Amendment. In Miami, the Central Intelligence Agency sets out to improve the image of its proxy army by recruiting a moderate civilian leadership among Nicaraguan exiles. In this hotel, the head of the agency's Central America team talks to Edgar Chamorro, an exiled businessman. There's a lot of selling of the contracts, you know, when I talk uh, to these people, you know, they, they were interested in uh, in seeing this as a as a product that have to be sold to the American consumer or, or, or to Congress. So there was a lot of salesmanship in the process. They needed but who was people. doing that? The CIA. Thirteen days before the crucial vote in Congress, the new Contra leadership, including Edgar Chamorro, is presented to the press. The CIA uh, sat with us. We had yellow pad, you know, everybody, and uh, we were uh, like in, in a brainstorm session, you know, saying, how do you talk to, to the press? Uh, and then one of the CIA people or whoever they was would ask a question and says, what do you say if they tell you, do you talk to your American officials? I say, of course, we say, no, don't say that. Say you never talk to them. Uh, and somebody else will drop a question. I say, what if they ask you, where did your money come from? He says, well, I'm from the United States. Don't ever say that. You know, you have to say from private sources. Hmm. Um, can I ask you real quick, Ramiro? Yeah. Uh, this is Edgar Chamorro. So I could be wrong because I tend to get names confused a lot. But was he, I, I thought he was one of the original five that instituted the original provisional government when the Sandinistas took over. So was he originally a Sandinista and then he flipped later on? Or is that a different Chamorro? Uh, I believe that was a different Chamorro. I'll have to double check actually. But that family, that last name Chamorro is affiliated with the bourgeoisie. One of the quote unquote activists who was recently jailed a few weeks ago, uh, the daughter of Violeta Chamorro, the former president, she, they're all one big oligarchic family that, that ran the country basically for many years and privatized everything. And they're connected to the bourgeoisie, they're connected to the Contras. And it's just interesting because they're as far right as it goes. I mean, if I had to compare them, I would compare them to Janine Añez in Bolivia or someone like oh, that yeah. who's just openly racist and fascist and they're never treated as such in mainstream media they're just treated as opposition or human rights activists and they are part of one ruling family the thing about a lot of central american countries especially the the small ones is that you know we're not talking about huge populations right we're talking about countries at this point six seven million people and there's a small handful of families that run the whole country just kind of like how a small town in the U.S. will have 
a few families that kind of run the show. That's how Nicaragua is as well. And that last name Chamorro is the bourgeoisie. Yeah. I just looked it up while you were saying that, and it's, uh, it was Violeta Chamorro that was part of the original mm-hmm. vibe. So as somewhere along the, the history of that, something must have gone wrong, and she became a, uh, a traitor to the revolution. So yep. uh, I'll pick back up here. I want to try and blow through a few more of this, because I'm realizing we're, we're still going at like a snail's pace, because there's just so much to say about this whole video. Um, but I want to get you out of here on time. I don't want to keep oh. you too long. Have you had any discussions with an employee of the U.S. government about your struggle? And if so, when and about what? No, no, yes. Dr. Chamorro, with all due respect, you yes. can't come here and expect us to believe that you have no links with the military situation there. This is not happening in a vacuum. Well, we can tell what we read in the press. That uh, I am being very honest to you. I am not, not being, being... What were they worried about in terms of the image of the FDN at that point? Well, at that point, the concern was that they needed money. The main concern I received from this man, we need money. And the only people that have money here is Congress. So just real quick, note that he said, when asked by reporters in the media, like, what's going on in Nicaragua, and he claims that he has no knowledge of it, and they say that that can't be the case, like, you have to know what's going on with this military situation. He says, oh, I just know what I read in the newspapers. That's going to come up again in a little bit from someone else. Congress buys the story, accepting the administration's claim that it is only stopping arms to El Salvador, not making war against Nicaragua. They authorized more money to the CIA, provided it is not used to overthrow the Sandinista government. Trust us. The so-called Bolin Amendment has the effect of ratifying the secret war, not curbing it. Congress was locked in a policy that it was faced with whether the question whether or not it wanted to pull the rug from under the executive. And the executive knew that it had Congress. And it was uh, basically that simple a dilemma. And, and from that point on, then, Congress has to look the other way uh, on some other deceptions. Well, from that point forward, uh, Congress couldn't have indicated any grave surprise. The administration's lack of candor, now fixed in law, will lead it into further evasions. From the point of view of the Nicaraguans who fought there, uh, they, were, they weren't hired to, to help uh, El Salvador or the United States. They wanted to change the situation in their own country. They meant to change the government or to overthrow it, whatever was needed. So we got into these contradictions. And then we got into quibbling between the administration and Congress as to, well, are you really abiding by not to overthrow? And we said, yes, we are abiding. Of course, we are law-abiding, and this is a law. But then what are your purposes in Nicaragua? If you don't want to overthrow, we have no purpose. You have no strategy. Come on now. The Bolin Amendment has no impact whatsoever on the war on the ground. The Contra Army has grown to 7,000 men, mostly based in Honduras, and from these camps, continued attacks on Nicaragua are launched. The real war is now cloaked in legislative fiction. Its true purpose is known, but is not officially acknowledged. Mr. President, why don't we openly support those 7,000 guerrillas that are in rebellion against it, rather than uh, giving aid through uh, covert activity? Because we want to keep on obeying the laws of our country, which we are obeying. I can follow up, sir. 
Washington seems to be in on the joke, including the press. Doesn't the United States want that government replaced? No, because that would be violating the law. But Mr. President, what is the American public to think? In Honduras, the war strategy has another dimension. So yeah, I definitely want to pause it there and just comment on Satan himself uh, <laughs> basically just flat out admitting what is going on in so many words because, you know, for our listeners who can't see it, he does that with the most just wry smirk on his face. And you can hear, obviously, the cackles of the press galley in the background and everything. And like they said in the narration, everyone's in on the joke, even the press. Like, everybody knows what's going on, but as long as you dot your I's and cross your T's and everything and you do everything by the book, it doesn't matter what's actually going on in reality. And even Jimmy Carter, who's hailed as this anti-war progressive, was part of that initial offensive strategy against the Sandinistas, the Democrats, under Bill Clinton as governor of Arkansas, once he started getting into the drug trade, was allowing this huge influx of drugs being flown in from the Contras and the CIA to land in Little Rock Airport and then be distributed all over the country. So the Democrats and the Republicans are just as culpable. And Spignu Brzezinski, who was a huge foreign advisor around this time period, was an evil genius in understanding that by directly aiding a over-military force, you would lose the media war. But by supporting, quote-unquote, pro-democracy activists or freedom fighters, that it would be better branding and PR I think this era is so pivotal in understanding how imperialism has metamorphized and changed and evolved because nothing is static. Imperialism is constantly improving itself, seeing how it can invade countries more easily. And this is no longer the era of Fulgencio Batista, like in Cuba, the Cuban revolution, or it was just like an overtly right-wing government that was fascist and anti-communist backed directly by the U.S. or even Pinochet in 1973 in Chile. By 1979, these new tactics were used of supporting moderate rebels. This is where this whole term comes from. And I love that term. This is, yes, it's just moderate rebel. I mean, it's just a complete nonsense wordplay. And this is around the time period that that strategy becomes full force and is still being used today. Yeah, the U.S. government learned a lot of lessons from Vietnam and just how to frame itself in front of the media, like especially these wars now where it's like, oh, yeah, like you don't need just hard right wingers and like fascists to support a war whenever you wrap it under the guise of human rights or like intervention, you know, like you can get centrists and even like liberals to jump in on it whenever you bring out words like self-determination and human rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is really the only part I think that I really wanted Sterling here for, because I really just wanted to see his cackle when he sees Reagan just uh, doing his bullshit right in front of all the press, right on the media, in front of the whole, the whole country. But uh, maybe we're better off not having him because he probably would have gone off for a while. And how fucking <laughs> Reagan is, but... Yeah, he'd take up the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll pick it back up. In 1954, Honduras served as the staging area for U.S.-backed intervention against Guatemala to its north. Now, Honduras... 
Honduras makes itself available for the U.S. military venture aimed at Nicaragua to the south. Notice we got everybody at attention before we brought the Air Force through. Long dependent on U.S. economic support, this country has always been compliant to American wishes. And this time, the Honduran military will receive what for them is a vast fortune, $80 million a year in U.S. funds for arms and training. Honduras is the poorest country in Central America. Per capita income is $560 a year. Nearly half the people are unemployed. Long ruled by the military, its democratically elected government is a new experiment. We have democracy, a very fragile democracy. As long as this conflict is here, I don't see how Honduras can really stabilize its own democracy. Because you cannot destabilize Nicaragua without destabilizing Honduras and the other countries in Central America. You cannot have a conflict in Nicaragua without affecting the whole region. But the warnings that the military money will strengthen Honduran generals at the expense of democracy aren't welcome, especially to the U.S. ambassador. He said that those in Honduras who, have, who are opposing U.S. policy as it is designed and is implemented, we are going to regret it. Uh, to be very frank with you, uh, people at the U.S. Embassy here only listen to those who support them. If you oppose them, you are anti-U.S., you are anti-American. They are not willing to listen to you. Oh, no, not anti-American. Uh, they want to hear <laughs> oh, God their own music. <laughs> Pentagon calls it building a shield for democracy. Daniel Ortega calls it a practice session for the invasion of Nicaragua. It is the most impressive show of American military force in Central America in more than a decade. Training exercises that will be staged again and again for years. The Pentagon won't reveal what it is spending on the construction of airfields, base camps, and other military installations here, but the total is in the hundreds of millions and neither the Honduran Congress nor the U.S. Congress is asked for approval. Is that uh, black budget again? God forbid American people actually know how much the U.S. is spending on military operations. Oh, that ruined the surprise. Like, that takes all the fun out of it. I love that people just buy that that's a, a matter of national security, to not know how much of your tax dollars are funding killing people in other countries. Like, as if your enemies would somehow be able to glean something from the amount that you're spending that could endanger anybody. Like, yeah, like when we can easily like find information on like how much is being spent on like the nuclear weapons budget, mm-hmm. but like oh the other stuff, no, 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 we gotta keep that secret. I was talking to my dad about that once, and he was telling me because he grew up around that time period and he saw everything. It was right there in his hometown, and he said that he would see the contrast roll up to like local bars, restaurant bars with sacks of money and the sacks would say USAID and they would, they would like come with like tons of money, like stacks, cash, close out the whole restaurant and just spend like do drugs, drink, rape women, beat up other men who weren't there. And it was some really crazy shit. And he also told me that there were a lot of firefights, a lot of gun battles on the border between Nicaragua and Honduras, between the Sandinista fighters who continue again, because, right, this is after the 
Sandinista revolution victory. So they're still in battle. They're still fighting against this new force, the Contras. And Contras were also, and these are uh, the Honduran military that was training them as well, were also used to murder and kill leftists in Honduras who were sympathetic to the Sandinista government and the Sandinista revolution. And around this time period is when a well-known Honduran activist, Berta Cáceres, became politicized. She was murdered in 2016, a few years ago. She was leftist, she was anti-imperialist, and she was radicalized around this time, seeing the U.S. taxpayer money funding death squads like Battalion 716 and others that were killing leftist organizers. So it's all, some, it's all really crazy. Well, at least the U.S. has evolved since then, and now instead of bags of cash, it's pallets that they send to Afghanistan. Right, right. To people who are raping and murdering women and children and everything, so. Well, it's not even just, like, them delivering it. Like, they just send it in advance because they already know what's going to happen, and then they just leave it there yeah. so that they have the plausible deniability. It's unbelievable, man. It's like, oh, they just captured it. That's what really gets me about all of this. It's like all this is out there. Like this documentary is a PBS documentary from the 80s. It's freely available on YouTube. All this stuff is just readily available information. And most Americans are just blissfully unaware of the myriad of atrocities that their government is committing with their taxpayer dollars. And they don't give a fuck. Like they just do not give a fuck. Yeah. Or the worst part where it's like, oh, yeah, I know we used to do that, but like, there's no we don't do that now. Like, right. Yeah, things are better because Biden's in office now. It's all good. Yeah. Like, it's 2021. Like, we don't do that stuff now. It's like, yeah, that's only because like the time limit on releasing documents is 25 years. Like, yeah. that's the only reason. Yeah. Now we pick back up here. There are training opportunities there not available in the United States. Uh, you can't go out anywhere in the United States and build a big dirt airstrip. And uh, our people have been able to do that in Honduras. Now, this is the other guy. I think I mentioned him uh, on the last episode as well. Uh, but this is the guy who's like the military guy. The huge jaw. Just like looks like the American dad caricature <laughs> on the show. Very Habsburgian. Yeah. And uh, it, he fits the bill perfectly. Like he's like a general and he really does a good job of framing all of this in the most diplomatic sounding way. But if you have two brain cells to rub together, you can see right through the bullshit here. I think he does a pretty good bullshit tactic right here. Secondly, I will tell you that I had an ulterior motive in, uh, in pushing that program in the beginning, and that was to, to see uh, Americans, North Americans, uh, from small towns and cities all over the country come to Central America, Honduras specifically, and begin to learn something about uh, our neighborhood, uh, or the area just beyond our immediate neighborhood, uh, believing that if we ultimately are going to cement relationships and, and bridge a, a, a wide gap of understanding between North America and Latin America, then more North Americans need to appreciate that part of the world, appreciate the problems, and appreciate what we can do to assist in improving the welfare of those people. Can you believe? the fucking audacity of this guy to frame this like atrocities that they're committing with clandestine military groups as we just need Americans from like all over the country, all the small towns just to go over and learn about what's going on in our neighborhood in South America and learn about the problems and how we can assist these people. It's like, 
the fucking gall on this guy to, to, to frame it that way. Like, and then it's not like anything bad happened to this guy. Like, I'm sure this guy has like a really nice house somewhere has retired with like his full pension and benefits and everything. And is just living the life, like living the life after being responsible for all these fucking atrocities. The growing American presence, military payrolls and GI spending them provides a faint flush of prosperity to impoverished towns like Comayagua. It is new money in a very poor country. Most of you know, the people are real friendly down here towards Americans. So far, you know. <laughs> you got lipstick on you. <laughs> Yeah, and for our listeners who can't see it, this soldier who's being interviewed by the media has a Nicaraguan woman on his shoulder who's, like, very friendly. So it's like, you could tell it's just like the Vietnam thing all over again, just, like, taking advantage of these women because you have some resources, they don't, and it's, it's fucking ridiculous. But the U.S. policy produces losers, too. The Contra War uproots thousands of peasants. Nicaragua tiene suficiente territorio. And small coffee growers suffer huge losses because the Contra army now occupies a substantial portion of Honduras. The Contras are becoming an armed nation within a nation. What's up, Ward? So you're going to have to cut this and like move it back to right after what you said. Yeah. But uh, sex work is work, Mike. Shut the fuck up, Ward. <laughs> Why would you dare criticize them? Uh, I mean, okay. I definitely don't want to get on this fucking tangent right now on this episode, but like, yeah, it's real work. It's also real exploitation because it is real work as long as it exists under capitalism. And, you know, for every motherfucker who wants to like insult me online or whatever on Instagram because they want to say that I'm like a swerf or I'm like anti-sex worker because they say that sex work is probably not the most ethical industry you could be involved in. And if we want to support sex workers, we should probably be giving them paths to exit out of that if that's what they want to do. And, you know, giving them the freedom to actually do what they want to do free of exploitation or coercion or any kind of forces outside their control that would force them into an industry they don't want to be in. To me, that seems like the best way to actually support sex workers rather than just saying, yes, queen, because like you want them to have an OnlyFans account and you want them to like prostitute themselves and you think that that's a good way to support their empowerment. It's like there's a huge gap between the reactionary opposition to sex work because they want to demonize women who are doing it, you know, women, non-men, anybody who's doing it because they want to demonize them and call them degenerates or whatever. And then the Marxist take on sex work, which is that it's very exploitative, it's dangerous, it's harmful, and if anything, we should be giving these people the opportunity to get out of it if that's what they want. And then if they have no, you know, if they have the means to do something else, whatever they really want to do, and they still want to do sex work, then fucking great. Then go, go for it. Like, be happy and do what you want. If that's really what you want, you're not being coerced. But I just don't know how that could be possible under capitalism. But anyway, I, I did not want to go off on that tangent, but there it is. So I, I just knew that would set you off. And so I just absolutely. Why? Why'd you do it? <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Yeah. I just got to sure. poke the bear, you know? So, and then I should say, none of my opinions reflect on Romero. Romero, I don't know what your opinions are or your stances are on sex work. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I agree with you, man. And I think bourgeois liberal feminism has promoted this idea that you can find liberation through sex work. And it's a very first world liberal thing. You go to the global south and most communist leftist groups have a very similar position that obviously the the victim is never the women who are for capitalism and imperialism are always the the cause and the enemy and i think there are examples of how that can be resolved in nicaragua for example 
one of the programs that was initiated in 2017 was hiring sex workers as community mediators to replace police in certain neighborhoods. So they were given state jobs with good benefits and good health care. And many of them stopped sex work because they were given those opportunities. Amazing. So that's a great example of how to combat it in action. And most of them are not there for women's empowerment or for liberation, but out of necessity. And it's really unfortunate that a lot of the bourgeois liberal first world feminists kind of just disregard that as as something bad. Yeah, they love to frame it as like, oh, it's so liberating as if that is somehow liberation while still living under capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. And and just one quick side note related to that as well. I also think the onus is on men as well to stop engaging, consenting to stuff like porn, because even like porn, for example, there's so many women who are trafficked in porn and who are forced into sex work. So it's also up to men as well to stop consenting to like OnlyFans and porn and all this other stuff that just perpetuates that cycle. So I feel like while I also blame capitalism and imperialism, I also think it's up to men, especially leftist men, to have the ideological rigor to like not contribute to that, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, and like if you really are into like viewing porn you know there is an ethical alternative there are like worker owned porn co-ops and like exhibitionist porn like people who will do it regardless of capitalism or not you know you don't have to just keep feeding into the monster that capitalism is yeah definitely i think we lost mike you there mike no i see yeah see we lost him oh we lost him okay i knew he was frozen yeah um no, it's a, it's a good point, and um, yeah, it's a, it's just interesting. I, for especially for a lot of the people in the U.S., I try not to touch the topic because people, no matter what you say, people are gonna get upset and angry. So I'm just like, okay. Oh, absolutely. Mike does it frequently on his Instagram, and it outrages a lot of people. It triggers a lot of people get triggered. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like we're not condemning the worker. We're condemning the work because the work is what it exists under capitalism. Right. And, you know, like everybody loves to do no ethical consumption under capitalism. And it's like, yeah, but like you can't understand like how they're being coerced into this field when they're the invisible gun of poverty is at their head at all times. Right. And it's even not just women, too, because a lot of times you go to the global south. I've seen this a lot of times. You'll see young men boys who are with older white dudes or older european american dudes who have them as basically like sugar babies you know so um it's something that is not even exclusive although women of course obviously bear the brunt lgbtq people women bear the brunt of that it's also an issue that affects young men as well yeah people condemn sex tourism but like won't understand how like that same like interaction happens here in the United States. Right. Hey, sorry about that. My internet uh, just shit the bed for a little bit there. So I missed pretty much everything you guys said for the last couple of minutes. <laughs> oh, no worries. We're just uh, continuing the topic. Good. I'm sure they're all very good takes. I can't wait to do the editing and listen back to it. Um, 
We have like 25 minutes left in this video, and we've got about 20 minutes left with Romero before he's got to go. So let's see how much of it we can get through. And then, Romero, if at any point you just have to go, that's fine. Just let us know. We'll do an outro for you. And then Ward and I can finish just cracking wise on this video, and then that'll be our episode for the night. And then if you want to come back next week, you're more than welcome just to talk about your documentary, because I'd love to talk about that as well. So cool. cool. All right, let me pick it back up here. Because the Contra army now occupies a substantial portion of Honduras. The Contras are becoming an armed nation within a nation. It is a war that is not ours. A war that's been brought here by the United States against Nicaragua. Let them fight against Nicaragua over there. But don't bring it here. Don't bring us problems and misery. If the purpose of the U.S. military strategy here is to intimidate Nicaragua, its immediate impact is on Honduras. For the GIs, it is a short tour in a strange place. If we don't stop them in Honduras, I'm going to tell you, they're going to be in Kansas. It's already been shown what? on national TV. <laughs> the, the Soviet Union has one philosophy and one philosophy only. We will dominate the world. It's pretty based, actually. Based. The United States don't want to dominate. We just want to sort of put our six cents worth in here and there. Oh, yeah? We've got to stay strong. We've got to support these people. We've got to take care of them because they're our Latin American brothers. And, yeah, I hope the first of the year we kick some ass in Nicaragua. That is pure ideology. Just boiled down. That is like pure dumbass American rhetoric that makes no fucking sense and is completely opposite of what reality is. But yeah, the mental yeah. gymnastics are absolutely <laughs> incredible. In Nicaragua, the war is not fiction, it is real. And the Sandinistas begin to mobilize for a long and larger conflict. In 1983, all young men over the age of 16 are subjected to a national draft. To its architects in Washington, that means the policy is working. Uh, Romero, did, did you catch that? Were they saying no pass it on there? Yeah, they were. Hell yeah. Fucking love that. As the Sandinista communist government tries to find the young men to push into its military uh, to grow to those huge sizes, uh, the government of Nicaragua will become more unpopular and more young men will decide to join the freedom fighters. And so I think what you'll see over time, uh, provided the Congress supports the president, is the mass defection of Sandinista army units composed of uh, uh, young men who want democracy and don't want to serve in communist armies. And I think that as the tide of expectations turns inside Nicaragua in this political and military conflict, I think you will see the crumbling of the armed forces of the Sandinista movement. And then the, the government collapses in the vacuum. And then, it, then how the things will work out existentially is something that history will tell us. Uh, Ramita, did you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, even the language he's using, like the Sandinistas are pushing people, forcing into the draft. I've spoken to former guerrilla fighters who were in that very conflict against the Contras, and they were saying that they had a problem holding people back from being too violent against the Contras. It was the complete opposite, because the Sandinista government was like, look, if we are overly violent against the Contras, if we match them force by force exactly, they're going to use it as a justification to invade. They're going to use this as another conflict. They're going to say that we're equally as bad. So it was a defensive war. It wasn't an offensive war against the Contras. It was a defensive war. They never even, even though the Contras were 
armed and trained in Honduras, and many of them were Honduran, not even Nicaraguan, and invaded Nicaragua, the Nicaraguans never set foot into Honduras. So it was a war of defense, and there were so many people who were ready from the revolution. Remember, this is just two, three years after the victory of the revolution. So you had a lot of young trained fighters who had just finished defeating the Somoza military regime and were ready to defeat the Contras, but only a handful of experienced Sandinista fighters were selected to fight the Contras because it was a very delicate situation, like we were mentioning before, impacted communities, Miskitu people whose lands were some of the conflicts took place on. So just the wording, like the way he was saying, push people into the draft, force them into, you know, it's just, those are the little cues that for anybody who, who is not familiar with the, the region or the history, they'll think it's, oh, okay, both sides are equally as bad. You know, both sides, it's a two-sided mm-hmm. con- And that seems to be sort of the strategy, right, is that a lot of times U.S. imperial, you know, we talk about imper- imperialism at the high stage of capitalism being accumulation through destruction where it's no longer that the imperialist forces have to have one side that wins and they have great PR. As long as they keep the conflict going for years, it doesn't matter what reputation they have. And they just frame it as like, Oh, it's complicated. All sides are bad. You know, there's multiple bad actors. If they use that language and they just keep the war going and the money flowing in, they still win, you know? So it's like, it's that new low intensity hybrid warfare that I think really takes shape around this time. Yeah. And this asshole has the nerve to call the Contras freedom fighters when those mm-hmm. assholes are fucking raping and pillaging and murdering innocents and engaging in drug trade to destabilize this country. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing that what this guy was saying, and then uh, going back to big jaw general dude, um, it reminds me of the whole we'll be hailed as liberators bullshit. Which, again, with hindsight, you can see how completely ridiculous that is. But it's like, I want to believe that most Americans have gotten to the point where they recognize that even in the present, like when they're being told that we should go invade Cuba or when we are being told that we should go invade X or Y country because we'll be able to liberate them and we'll be seen as heroes. It's like, I want to believe that people can see through that by now, but I don't have a lot of faith that that's the level of discourse that most Americans are on. But No, that would require a certain level of political education that this country is lacking. Yeah, bro, it's all it's all good. We got gay marriage now. It's all fine. Yeah, things are fine. Thanks, <laughs> Obama. <laughs> Along the border, however, Washington's expectations are not being met. History is playing out differently. Contra field commanders complain that their troops are being underfed and poorly led. Forty-one of them will mutiny against their leader, Enrique Bermudez, charging corruption and mismanagement, and demanding his removal. When their plea is rejected by the American advisors, some of them will abandon the struggle. It's a shame all those years I wasted there. I did what I could. I contributed my share towards the victory. Marlon Blandon was a Contra field commander, known as Comandante Gorion. I just wanted to pause it there for one second. Yeah. I find it interesting that his name is Comandante Gurion, like David Ben-Gurion from the state of Israel. And mm-hmm. remember, keep in mind that 8283, IDF is training the Contras, IDF is training the Guatemalan fascist government. So you already see like the role. I think that's one of the things that is very underplayed is also like the role of Israel and, and Zionism in 
fomenting a lot of this this conflict in Central America, and this is where they got a lot of their funding and arms from in the 80s by under Menachem Begin. So there's a lot of connections, and even today, a lot of the opposition is organized in the evangelical churches that are very pro-Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little callback to our last episode when we talked about democratic socialism and how the DSA, for the longest time, but until fairly recently, supported Israel. Um, just not a good look. It's <laughs> yeah. a pretty cringe take. Two years. <laughs> I was there. I fought. But being manipulated this way and being sent there to be slaughtered, to, to be used as cannon fodder, as we say, <laughs> no way. By the spring of 1983, events have forced the question, does this proxy army have any real prospects for victory? While the troops flounder in the field, the American managers are called together for a reassessment. I had a lengthy session uh, with William Casey. Uh, I would like to say, like, how they're saying, like, oh, do they actually have any prospect? Like, does the Contras actually have any prospects of, like, winning? It's like, yeah, it kind of, like, from the U.S., uh, standpoint, yes, they do have a vested interest in the Contras winning because then they overthrow the communists. But at the same time, they're totally fine with them not winning and just creating destabilization and creating these wars and this terror because it just gives them enough fuel to portray in the media as the Sandinistas being the bad guys. Yeah, that's the other thing I didn't mention when I was saying how this always works out in favor of the U.S. government across the board is that if you just destabilize the region enough, then you can just point to that as the failures of communism as usual and just add more ticks on the victims of communism tally. Yeah, definitely. While the troops flounder in the field, the American managers are called together for a reassessment. I had a lengthy session uh, with William Casey. Uh, Frank McNeil was our ambassador to Costa Rica then, and a participant in the strategy session called by William Casey. Remember that name from our episodes on Reagan, uh, William Casey, that motherfucker. In the spring of 1983, in which the CIA official asserted uh, that the Contras would be in Managua in about six months, by Christmas time. That is uh, terribly optimistic. Uh, oh, they'll be there in six months said that's nonsense politely but strongly was that a sincere belief of the operators that uh, that this was going to happen or were they or were they just building a a reality that they could sell to the top mm-hmm. i think probably there was a mixture of that among the operators if you're Mostly really committed you you believe what you want to believe uh it's also uh politically prudent to tell the boss what they want to hear. In fact, a collective assessment by all American intelligence agencies predicts the Contras will find it difficult to capture regional cities, let alone topple the Sandinista government. In other words, on their own, the Contras can't win. Here's where the role of William Casey becomes important. He's the first director the CIA has ever had who was really more a politician than anything else. Came in John Horton was a senior Latin America analyst at the CIA. Period. But the difference is with Mr. Casey that he runs the CIA and he can decide what the CIA does and he can carry it to any limit he wants. And I feel that his judgment on Central America and his desire to see administration policy carried out there 
has meant, if not an abuse of the CIA, at least putting it back in the position where it shouldn't ever be, of being the, the main uh, point uh, element of administration policy. I would love to know, like, what this guy believes is an abuse of the CIA. Like, what's an overextension of the CIA's powers, considering what we know about what their what their just standard operating procedure even is, like what their entire goal is. Like, right? I bet you could not get a straight answer out of that guy. <laughs> the CIA director is running a war. William Casey will not be deterred by either gloomy intelligence estimates or by squeamish congressmen. He, he has his intellect in one hand, then he has this this feeling of, by God, these damn Democrats or these liberals or these congressmen. What gets him up? I mean, talking about the Soviet threat? Well, this, yeah, the, and the Soviets getting away with things, and the and Sandinistas getting away with the idea of this little bunch of thugs confronting us and having their way. Nicaragua and its army cannot be allowed to win. So the CIA escalates the war, taking a direct role in the aggression. From a mothership off the coast, the agency conducts its own attacks. As detailed in this classified CIA document, dozens of sabotage missions are launched by the agency's own employees, a special force of Latin mercenaries. They are called unilaterally controlled Latino assets. The missions were always controlled by the CIA. Those of us who fought, who were, so to speak, the cannon fodder, were Honduran. But we were controlled by the gringos. They gave us the orders. We were at their disposal. While the mercenaries blow up refineries and mine harbors, U.S. pilots fly back up, firing on Sandinista positions. We sabotage harbors, refineries, shipyards, bridges. We never use our own uniforms. We use uh, Contra uniforms so that the foreign press will think the Contras were doing all the work and the Americans could walk away with their hands clean. US-directed attacks on economic targets, as well as the mining of harbors, are defined by international law as acts of aggression. But the administration continues to claim its secret war violates neither congressional restrictions nor national principles. I think each victim is a tragedy, and it, it is part of war, and I think the moral responsibility for every single victim rests with the communist government of Nicaragua, just as the responsibility for every victim of World War II rests with Adolf Hitler, who initiated the conflict. And so in the same way, the communist government of Nicaragua is responsible for the armed resistance existing because it exists only because of their aggression. All right, so I'm going to stop it there. Try to be respectful of Romero's time. It's about time for him to go. So I just wanted to get any final comments you have on that last little clip. And then we have about 16 and a half minutes of the video left to pick up on the next time. And then we can finish that up and then talk about your documentary. But if you want to make any final comments about how enraging that last little section was, go for it. I mean, it just goes to show you straight from the horse's mouth that the U.S. imperialists, the CIA, will use any and all tactics to advance their regime change efforts, even if it means disguising themselves in different uniforms, false flag attacks. And the second you say false flag attacks, 
people are like, here we go, tinfoil hat, yeah. Alex Jones. <laughs> There's a reason why mainstream media, especially liberals, I would say, are so vehemently against quote-unquote conspiracy theories because many of these quote-unquote conspiracy theories when it comes to the global south and imperialism are true. The same way that the CIA tried to assassinate Fidel Castro like 900 times, they tried to poison his cigar, they tried to poison his food. That's all true. You know, the, the CIA wanted to blow up Miami and kill innocent people in Miami and blame it on the Cuban government. Operation Northwoods. Operation Northwoods, exactly. And, and it's all true. And back then, if you said it, you were some crazy kook who's just watching, you know, too much stuff. And they reveal it years later in declassified documents. They're like, oh, yeah, by the way, all that stuff. Yeah, it was true. But at that point, people are too distracted by, you know, TikTok and whatever other stuff mm-hmm. is out there that they don't even care. Nobody goes back to look at the record and, and set the record straight. And that's 100% the case with Nicaragua as well. A lot of the terrorist attacks that are carried out against Sandinista government or carried out by Honduran mercenaries or Nicaraguans dressed up as Sandinistas. That happened a lot. And even to people who are Nicaraguans who left the country and who have bad associations with the Sandinistas, a lot of times they were just people who were dressed up like them, who just had a red and black bandana or something. And it's as simple as that, you know? So it's, there's so many, that's why imperialism is not just economic and political. It's ideological it's mediatic it's psychological there's so many different components to it and i think that testimony from that u.s official shows exactly the extent the dynamic nature of imperialism in convincing winning the hearts and minds of people to support regime change and i remember that happening in 2014 with syria i was like one of the few people in New York at the time, who was like protesting in defense of hands off Syria. And so many mm. people, even on the left, just bought all the talking points about the, you know, the Assad is gassing his own people and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and that's been tried and tested. And, and Nicaragua was a staging ground for a laboratory for a lot of that. So uh, it's been really great talking to you guys. Uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation later on yeah i can't wait to do it again and go ahead and uh, you guys, plug your social media and your, and your stuff again yeah you guys can follow me on youtube just look for me uh ramiro sebastian funes r-a-m-i-r-o um and you can just catch me there i'm not really on social media like that just out of personal choice i yeah uh, for me personally for my mental health and for just like being uh productive i feel like getting off of social media for me has been a a, a better decision so i just I'm more production oriented around YouTube. Um, so you guys can follow me there. I have other videos as well. Recent ones from Nicaragua, aside from the documentary, it's a series Nicaragua against empire. So I have the two hour documentary, but I also have several other videos, uh, interviewing people just a few weeks ago about their thoughts on the revolution. So you can check those out on my YouTube as well. And, uh, thanks again, man, for Thanks again for having me. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, and for our listeners, that is uh, Nicaragua Against Empire. If you just look that up on YouTube, you'll find Romero's channel and his documentary and all his other videos. So please go and subscribe and give him some uh, press on or give him some uh, publicity on YouTube. Thank you. Thanks again. Take care. Yeah, I just wanted to make one last comment about... Oh, I got a last comment, too. (laughs) (laughs) About the nerve, again, the nerve and just the gall of this guy saying that 
the Nicaraguan Sandinista government is responsible for this because they started the aggression. Like, just, I'm just, the, the mind blown expression. Like, the fact that, like, he could say that and get away with saying it and people buy into it. And it's like, and again, just touching on what Romero was just saying, like, about how even now, like, if you say anything in slight defense of Assad against U.S. imperialism, maybe even if you're like critically supportive and you say like, look, obviously Assad's not the greatest guy in the world. You know, I'm sure there's some issues with the Syrian government, but it's like, like, obviously we, we've just had it come out that all the reports about him gassing his own people, those actually were the U.S. sponsored rebels that were that were conducting all the gas attacks. And it's like yep. most people don't know that. That's like the correction that comes out after the headline. You know what I mean? It's like everybody remembers that headline, but they don't see the correction that comes out in like page 12 years later after they've already forgotten about the incident. But uh, go ahead, Ward, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, no, like um, you just see the audacity of the U.S. government, how they're backing the Contras, but then they send in other CIA bad guys dressed as Contras. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so absolutely nefarious. And like just how you're saying, like, oh, it's the Sandinistas fault that all of this happened, just like it's like Adolf Hitler's fault that everything happened, which is like totally disregarding like the complicity of United States uh, corporations that aided the Nazis. And, you know, like a whole Western agreement that was like, well, we're just going to let him do his thing because he's going to push East into the USSR. And it's not going to be our Mm -hmm. problem because he's going to take out those commies and then maybe we can go in after you know, it just removes all the nuance that's actually surrounding the situations. Yeah. And then people still, because again, they're just so uninformed and so politically illiterate, they will still say like, oh, Hitler was a socialist or like, you know, socialism killed billions. Look at, look at what Hitler did. It's like, it's just, it's so frustrating. And again, I guess kind of touching on a a larger point, like what we hope to do here not only with this series of episodes, but every episode we do, it's like, obviously we don't expect anybody to retain everything that's being said by this documentary or like any of the guests that we have or anything that we say, any of the research that we put forward. But it's like, as long as you walk away from all of this with a general impression of what is actually going on, as opposed to what you've been told your whole life from American media, from the American government, as long as you walk away from all this with a recognition of the pattern and how it works and with a healthy distrust of the American government and military interventions and everything, and realize that, you know, socialism is the only way forward if we want to see any kind of improvement in our material conditions in our lives. And yeah. Yeah. Basically, you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Go ahead and uh, plug your Instagram and we'll do the plugs for everybody else. Uh, yeah, you can follow me uh, at Millennial Leftist, uh, common spelling, no underscore. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Oh, yeah. And then uh, our podcast Twitter is Twitter slash Turn Leftist Pod. Uh, Jaron's website is J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. You can pick up his book, The Politics of Fear, that we are reading through on our Patreon channel. And then Cosper, their Twitch is, I mean, not their Twitch, Cosper's Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And uh, I think they've been releasing some content. Um, yes. i got to check it out again. I'm sure anybody who's listened to this podcast for any significant amount of time has heard some of the great stuff that Cosper drops on us on a regular basis. So if you want more of that, really in-depth, go check out their Patreon. And then uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm at TurnLeftist1312 or TurnLeftist1917 once they ban that other one. And then uh, everything else you can find on our link tree or find us at Patreon.com slash TurnLeftist. And I will take the opportunity again to thank our Patreon subscribers. We have a few new ones. Uh, so thank you to Zach, James, Rave Enigma, Marvin, Kay Hrida, Not Drinking Water 69, A Second James, Mike, not me, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, 
Jaron has the best opinions. <laughs> Jared, Hayden, another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, a third James, who, who was actually the first James, uh, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bovey Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Thank you all so much. You are heroes of the revolution. Yeah, absolutely blown away by how many Patreon subscribers we have. Dude, and we didn't even release the episode with Brad. I can't imagine what's going to happen. Like, I know I'll have to make some kind of distinction as to when we stop reading out all the names and maybe just read the new ones if we get to like a certain number because it could become unwieldy at that point. But, oh, yeah. we'll see. but again, just to stress to everybody, like not only, of course, thank you. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. But like, please don't feel the need to do that. Like, uh, as far as I know, we're all doing fine. And I do want to have a conversation about what we're going to do with it. Because, uh, I mean, aside from like, like I said, a, a podcast trip to DPRK, the only thing I can really think of justifiably to do with it would be just give it all to Cosper, just because they're the youngest and they're in college and they could probably use it more than any of us. And I know that like the rest of us are all very gainfully employed, like we're fine, so we don't need it. But um, yeah, between giving it to Cosper or hiring an editor just so we can yeah. pump out more episodes, those are probably yeah. the two most achievable goals that we have. Still want that DPRK trip so bad, oh, dude. Same. Absolutely. <laughs> so bad. That's like a life goal of mine. All right. Well, thank you again, everyone, for listening. Uh, please leave us some good reviews on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. You know, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. Give us some good comments and thumbs up and likes and subscribes on YouTube. And uh, I think that's about all I can think of. All right. Thanks for joining me, Ward. This was fun. Yeah, I had a blast. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to do it again. Later. Later.